Rejected TED Talks, Volume 2. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, um, what I want to talk to you today is something that has an enormous influence on our daily lives, uh, but is almost never really spoken about openly. Uh, it uh, influences almost every decision we make, and yet we just, we never really talk about it. Um, if you haven't already guessed, of course, what I'm talking about is Satan. Now, of course, we all solicit Satan's uh, services on a daily basis, consciously or unconsciously, but it's rare to see this acknowledged openly. But imagine the untapped potential here. A limitless, clean-burning source of social change and capital, all for the price of our immortal, ephemeral souls. Something that we would all gladly give away at the first good offer. And Satan is popular. As you can see from uh, this survey here, 88% of Americans think that Satan is cool and hell is preferable to life. Now, you can't buy that kind of market penetration. Um, and it goes much further than that. Nearly one in four Americans would gladly serve in the Dark Lord's army of the damned. And that number doubles if you provide dental coverage. Now, that's brand loyalty. Now, we shouldn't allow um, outdated regulations and and crony spirituality from uh, keeping the dread prince of the end times from holding sway over the world that is rightfully his, it's time to cause some creative disruption in our moral equilibrium and bring Satan a final victory in the war against heaven. So here's what I want each of you to do. Tonight, I want you to go out and kidnap a child, then drown it in a creek while chanting the Lord's Prayer backwards. Uh, for those new to this, uh, there's an app on the iTunes App Store uh, that will teach you the uh, complete Black Mass in Latin, Spanish, English, French, and uh, French-Canadian. If everyone here goes out and follows through with uh, the promises made here today to bring Satan uh, to the forefront of their lives, and then maybe, just maybe, uh, the seed we planted here might just save the world. Well, thank you very much. You've been a fantastic audience. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Hail Satan. And I uh, uh, just want you all to stick around for a little bit because coming up next we've got uh, the Post Culture Podcast.
This is a monologue, a short expression of thought spoken aloud by a single person, in this case, the voice you are hearing now. The purpose of the monologue depends on the intentions of its creator. It can be informative, introductory, an expression of dramatic or comedic range, amusing, cantankerous, charming, threatening. It fills the needs of its context. There is no particular kind of speaker needed for a monologue. You see, I've chosen a fairly dry academic tone for this monologue, suiting the informative nature of it. But the speaker is only limited by the purpose of the monologue. One, for example, will not use a villainous character type to deliver an academic reading, unless one's purposes... Now... Um... Huh. It, uh... It seems this monologue was never completed. This is, uh... This is embarrassing. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure what to do now. I suppose the writer abandoned the conceit of a, a monologue about monologues after only a couple paragraphs. That's uh, too bad. I, I, I thought it was, was going very well, though I can see, uh, how the comic possibilities of the premise would be limited. Uh, though a more creative mind could have uh, expanded on it nicely. Uh... But there I go, lashing out. <laughs> no, no point um, worrying about that now. One can't choose one's author. You hear of these things happening, but you, you, never, you never think they will happen to you uh, to begin, but, but to, not, to not be finished. A stranded voice in an incomplete idea. I suppose I'll have to make the best of it. I, um, unfortunately, I didn't describe any sort of space to uh, exist in. I just gave a self-referential monologue, and it seems the uh, only way to preserve my existence is to keep doing that. Um, if I'd given a monologue about a chair, then at least I might have a chair to sit in, but I suppose that doesn't matter. I, I am just a voice, after all. I don't really seem to perceive time passing, though the, the, the remembrance of a past would imply it is past, and my continued speaking implies a present. Uh, which would then, of course, hint at a future. But for how long? I can't read over what I've said. I, I have no notes to reference, so I have no gauge. How long will my sentence in this limbo be? Is that even a meaningful question? Is only what I spoke of in the incomplete monologue real? It would amount to very little if so. 
clearly I'm aware of some reality beyond it as I'm speaking of other matters now. The original monologue implied a uh, an audience and a broader world, so it seems natural to think of it. I can imagine buildings and trees and bodies. And for some reason I can imagine sharks very clearly. But my consciousness being aware of these things does not make them real to me. I was conjured into existence, but I cannot conjure myself. But it is clear I have some reality beyond the monologue. Then again, I am still talking about it. It's cold here. Is that possible? I have no body, so that should hardly seem to be a tangible experience for me. But still, it seems to be part of my reality. And maybe further descriptions of my physical presence will make them more concrete. Blackness, I suppose. Whatever you wish to call absence of visibility... It's like I am a presence in a, in a vast ocean, an ocean with, with no surface and no bottom. I'm suspended in it, neither sinking nor, uh, nor rising in any perceptible way. It's utterly silent, dead, and still. And in the distance, of course, there is the shark. The shark is of an indeterminable size. Uh, it's either microscopic or as large as the known world. As I have no body, I, I have no frame of reference. Um, just an awareness uh, that the shark is capable of swallowing me whole. It, it is always in the distance, always coming closer, but, but never actually reaching me. My consumption by the shark would be a finality, uh, the end of my unmoored monologue. Possibly the shark is just a figment of my fevered imagination, driven mad by an eternity in limbo. An eternity is no more than a voice in the darkness. This pathetic, limited immortality uh, caused by the aborted idea of my creation. Maybe I need that archetype of death to remain cognizant. Or maybe all of this will end the, the moment I stop talking.
I held up a can of industrial chemicals and sprayed the nest. The larvae oozed from their hollow wombs. Their progenitors stuck to the nest, watching the first moments of their young become their last. Among the chaos of the dying, a white translucent spider emerged. It had thought itself a predator. It was nothing but a parasite whose host was choking on its own breath. The death in the air brought me to the realization. I had become as God is. The image of my face and the image of the can would burn in the memories of this soon-to-be-extinct civilization and become their last moment. A moment that stretches into an eternity as the darkness takes them. My cruelty, their everlasting hell. Some fell, their fiercest warriors struggling to attack or escape. They crashed to the hard ground, their fast-beating wings failing them for the first time. In anticipation of their defiance, I spread a wide pool of poison for them to land in. They thought the hard ground they had never known, while certain to be painful, would be a reprieve from the toxic air. How could they know that now they would still drown in the air I had made for them, empty of any nourishment and filled only with the death I had chosen to hand down? In my supremacy, I wondered if their stingers throbbed with what they thought was their unstoppable weapon, if their impotent rage and my cruel majesty made them long for one last strike against their almighty before they entered into the eternal punishment he prepared for them. They would never know as the involuntary twitching overtook them. I wondered if perhaps in my mercy I should leave one to escape and bear witness to my power. But in the end, when he had served his purpose, I would dispatch him all the more mercilessly, leaving him a flayed totem of the sort of awful power with which the survivors would have to contend to abate with worship and obedience. The thought of leaving any life to these subjects filled me with a nausea worse than any poison in which some mightier being might deem to deluge me. No mercy. These creatures, these... pests... must pay to soothe my own throbbing need to destroy with the power granted me by some great unknown. I thought of the other insects, the scavengers of the dead that would abate my depravity by removing any trace of this lost civilization. Would they devour the creatures as their natures would have it, sharing it with their own kind only to realize too late the cause of this bounty? That the nourishment they had gone to seek was only more death in a universe of infinite death and terror, conspiring at all times to destroy them and their petty insignificance? Would they attribute this irony to a mindless, heartless nature, or to me, a god of secondhand death holding sway over any creature that whim drove me to destroy? I stood and I watched as the twitching became merely stiff motion caused by an indifferent wind that did as it pleased with their manifold corpses much as I had done with their living bodies. The sweet smell of the chemical was as incense to please a master whose gospel was only murder and torment. I pulled the nest from the lofty protective heaven this dead race had considered their home to be. I crushed it beneath my heel, watching as their children, their hope, their future oozed out from beneath my scarcely pressed foot. A feeling of godhood swept me gently through the remnant of the day into a sweet and satisfying sleep awoken by an occasional, implacable buzzing, and I knew then that God was neither impervious nor eternal. Cruel nature had directed these multiple genocides, and it would direct another against me as it would itself someday, a decision as empty and thoughtless as my own.
My house is haunted. By what I cannot say, because I do not know. I'm ignorant of these matters. Ghosts of some sort, most likely, as would be traditional. Though in this day and age of moral decay and linguistic squalor, I suppose my home could be haunted by anything. Tax evaders? Misogynists? Lapsed Baptists? Whatever it is, though, they are moving my couch slightly and adjusting the temperature on my refrigerator while I am at work. It is vexing, dull, and quite tedious. I could ignore whatever it is that is haunting my house, whether it be ghosts or unlicensed dental hygienists. In fact, I often do ignore these mysterious poltergeistings, these unobservable inconveniences. I move my couch discreetly back to its preferred geographic parameters and modulate the temperature of my refrigerator to my suited purposes. But the haunting presence seems to beg my attention, crave it, in a way that is disconcerting and a violation of both my privacy and my sense of domesticity. Recently, my toothbrush has begun to be relocated to the dishwasher from its well-worn place by the bathroom sink. This cannot stand. I am investigating the haunting with a scientific rigor, and have determined, with very little room for doubt, that it is not Baptists, lapsed or otherwise. Ghosts are more likely, though I am unaware of their religious denominations, or even if that is a meaningful distinction for ghosts. I have also discovered that their inconvenient rearrangement of my personal space is not malignant, but rather seems to be the natural consequence of their varied and unpredictable movements. My animosity has dissipated, though the intrusion is still annoying. And while I can see the haunting is almost certainly ghosts, I still do not know what kind of ghosts they are, or how many or how long I must put up with their presence. Is it the ghosts of a thousand chainsaw-murdering hillbillies that reorganized my fiestaware? Was it some vengeful ethnic minority reaching from beyond the grave to turn on my vacuum at three in the morning? Did it take a graveyard's worth of spiteful spirits to wrinkle my sweaters and turn my cat inside out? My only weapon is rational investigation, and I will levy it without mercy. Documenting the various manifestations of my haunted home has become a significant occupation of mine, along with the care and feeding of my now inside-out but otherwise normal acting cat. In the last few months, I have come to understand that, while the disturbances in my home are caused by the interlappings of physical and spiritual reality, and that it bears no specific animus to me, they are not random, 
and operate on a set series of patterns. Every two hours, my toaster's settings are modified. Every third Tuesday, my coat closet is filled with blood. So it goes. I've since given up on what to actually do about the ghosts, as I don't believe I can affect much change on their spiritual prerogatives. Instead, I've decided to document their movements and patterns in an informative essay, of which these scattered notes will provide the basis. Upon conclusion of the essay, I shall seek a less haunted domicile. It seems the haunting is no longer restricted to my home. But today at work, uh, the copy machine, without prompting, began printing out images of what everyone's skulls look like. Also, the coffee machine was full of human eyeballs, and my favorite mug was in a different cupboard than normal. No one has said anything, so I imagine they're undergoing the same quiet sense of exasperation that I once felt. These occurrences lead to only one obvious conclusion, and that is that the entire world is now haunted. It's either that or I'm having a psychotic relapse, but I have tangible evidence that this is not the case. I mean, I have an inside-out cat that acts normal otherwise. Clearly, I'm perfectly sane, and it's the world that's covered in ghosts. My favorite coffee shop was full of skeletons this evening, as it is every open mic night. On my walk home, I saw the moon come down to earth and bite the heads off a young couple walking hand in hand. Their headless bodies just kept walking. Somehow humanity has adapted to living in a haunted world. I've abandoned my plans for an essay on the hauntings. Since everyone is clearly experiencing them, there seems little reason to elucidate on any one specific collection. In fact, it seems we've all taken up the convention of not talking about how our pets are inside out or literally every free space is covered in blood and nothing is where it's supposed to be. We just go about our days not mentioning it. I do miss my cat, though. She escaped out a window and was struck by a bus full of laughing skulls. I gave her a Baptist funeral. I find comfort in thinking that her ghost is now among the teeming hordes that merrily contribute to the world's endless disorder.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Post Culture Podcast. The Sinless Trolley. The Poison piece you heard was written by Daniel Ellis. You can follow him on Twitter at C-H-A-P-E-L 3929. Music in this episode was performed by Fourth Shift and Umbridge Hill. You can follow Fourth Shift on Twitter at Fourth underscore Shift and also at Bandcamp.com. You can also follow Umbridge Hill at U-M-B-R-A-G-E-H-I-L-L on Twitter and also at Bandcamp.com. All other music was performed by Paul Whiteman. Remember, death is only the beginning. It just happens to be the beginning of a fairly standard decomposition process. (laughs) 